Genesis chapter 32, beginning in verse 1. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I, have only, I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to the servant, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say to him, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau, and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, the third, and all the others who followed the herd, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gift went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his eleven sons and crossed the fords of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wretched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. 
The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip, because the socket of, God, or of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. Let us pray together. Our Father, we prostrate ourselves before you, asking humbly and boldly that you would teach us by your word and that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that we would, uh, that we would have understanding through the power of your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. What is it you fear? How do you deal with that fear? What is it that gives you moments of anxiety or dread? I'm not talking about irrational fears like things like the boogeyman or vampires or zombies, but what circumstances do you face that cause you to be afraid? I mean, there are some of us here who I'm sure when we follow politics cannot help feeling a little sense of dread or fear at what may be happening and how it will affect our lives eventually. For others, we ask questions like, is my job secure? When the economy goes into a slump or a downturn, do I have a position that won't disappear when the company downsizes? Do we have enough money in the bank to survive for a few months if I do lose my job? If not, where's the money going to come from? We fear all sorts of things. We fear cancer and heart disease, anything that might be a death sentence, physically speaking. We fear change. We fear for our children. We fear for our health. We fear death. We fear, we have fear in our lives constantly. We like having things uh, in our life, nice and neat and tidy, predictable and struggle-free, and when things spin out of control, we lose it and grow afraid and terrified. We all have fears that we face, one kind or another, that must be faced, some of which are uh, debilitating. The question is, do we fear the right things? I think that is the t question that our text brings us to this morning. This morning, we come to a text that is marked by fear and is shadowed throughout the entirety of the text. And we see this as we watch Jacob returning to the promised land and preparing to meet Esau in an uncertain meeting, an uncertain meeting. As we come to the text before us, uh, Jacob is heading home. After many years of living, living with Laban, his uncle, after 20 years of not seeing his father or mother or brother, Jacob is finally returning to the land that was promised him by God himself. As he left the land, God has called him to return home, and Jacob is doing just that. 
It is a moment for Jacob that as you uh, think about what is going on, it ought to be a time that is filled with joy and happiness and much uh, rejoicing. It ought to be a time of celebration that we are watching. A family is being reunited after a long separation. This is like when a man returns uh, after, uh, who, who is in the military, when he is reunited with his family after a long tour. It is a moment of returning in triumph in one sense for Jacob, who went away empty. As he even declares in this text, he walked away with nothing but a staff in his hand. And now he returns home with great wealth, with flocks, with camels and servants, wives and 11 sons. A host travels with him in his caravan. And yet, there is no certainty in this return. There is no assurance in his coming home. Jacob isn't just returning to a mother and a father who love him and who have been missing him for 20 years. In fact, the text focuses in on who else he is returning to. He's returning to a brother who swore to kill him before he left. He's walking into a situation of unknown. He's walking into something that he cannot know the consequences of his actions. He does not know if uh, Jacob or Esau is still holding his grudge, if Esau has been preparing to kill him. He doesn't know how his return will be received by his very own flesh and blood. And as these thoughts are going through Jacob's head as an uncertainty of will, what will happen lies right before him, Jacob looks up, and you'll notice the text opens with this. Jacob looks up and he sees an army of angels who have come out to meet him. And he cries out, behold, the camp of God is in this place. And it seems to us as we read this text, for most of us, we read this text and think by all appearances, this must be good news that God has sent angels to come and meet Jacob. It's like a good sign, a good omen, like a rainbow after a storm. It may seem that way to us, but the text here is surprisingly ambiguous for how we ought to read it, how we ought to interpret it. You see, as the word used here for meat is used throughout the Old Testament, that word over half of the times that it is used, this specific word, it is used when someone has come out to meet you in war or in battle. It's as though an army has gathered here and waiting for Jacob. This army, this heavenly host may be here and it is just that. They may have come out in opposition against Jacob and we are waiting for that. Like two armies coming out to meet or an army coming out to meet another. Maybe that he is coming like a man coming to strike another man down. The text doesn't really indicate what is meant here by this camp of God, at least not at first. And so the question still hangs in the text, even as these angels appear before him, whether this is going to be a good meeting, a a good thing, or if it will be a meeting for ill. um. And the tension as you go through and begin working through the text, it rises a little bit in the text. What's going to happen? Is there something threatening and foreboding waiting for Jacob? Has God himself come out before Jacob in defense of him, or has he come to make war with Jacob? And Jacob wonders himself these things, what it is that will be before him. He can't read the sign. The text is filled with this sense of unknown all around Jacob. And so Jacob, looking to get a handle in the situation and what is going on, he sends messengers to Esau 
to find out if he will meet with Jacob in peace, to find out if there is good or ill coming to him through the man Esau. Esau has moved out from the promised land to the land of Seir. He has left his father and mother, basically forsaking everything connected to the God of his fathers. And yet Jacob still seeks him out to reconcile, to make things right, to repent of his sin against him for his trickery and scheming. And so he sends out these servants with a message saying to Esau, My Lord, thus says your servant Jacob. Now that may not strike you as odd, but I hope it does. There are many odd things about this story, and this is not the least of them. Uh, Listen to the language here. Jacob calls Esau, My Lord, and then in the very next words, he calls himself a lowly servant. This one who is the patriarch, the son of Abraham and Isaac, and now Jacob, this one whom God had promised to Isaac and Rebekah that the younger would rule over the older, that this land he is about to enter would be his inheritance, that he has every right to lord it over those who ought to submit to him, and yet he humbles himself before his brother. Jacob is laying down these literally God-given rights in order to make peace with his brother. It reminds you of Abraham when he gave Lot the first choice of the land. The greater lowers himself, humbling himself for the sake of peace. It's a very humbling, beautiful picture that gets shattered immediately when the messengers return home. The servants come back and they say to Jacob, you know, hey, we took your messages to your brother and he's coming to meet you. Oh, but by the way, he's coming with 400 men. 400 men are coming behind him in his van. And Jacob is immediately, the text makes no bones about it, he is immediately very afraid. It sets the tone for the whole text. He is distressed, and you would be too if this message came back to you. Well, Jacob is sending an olive branch to his brother, and his brother is coming out to meet him with an army. 400 is a number often associated with military might and power here. A host of men are coming to meet little old Jacob. And Jacob starts thinking, what could Esau possibly need that many men for to come out for against me unless he has in mind to kill me and destroy all that I have? Fear begins to consume Jacob. He begins to panic and scheme and plan this meeting. He begins to prepare to meet an enemy. Meeting an enemy. As soon as Jacob gets this news about his brother, you'll notice in the text he springs into action. He is clearly terrified of what is coming out to meet him. He doesn't know, honestly, one way or the other, which way this will go, if this coming, company is coming to meet him for good or ill. Just as when he saw the angels, he does not know if they are for good or ill. But it doesn't look good to him. And so Jacob begins to do what he always does. It's the same old Jacob, just a different day. He schemes and he plans. He takes things into his own hands. So he takes all of his peoples and all of his possessions and his family that are with him, and he divides them into two camps. He puts a large space between them so that if he is attacked, at least half of them might have a fighting chance at getting away. Calvin says, by this scheme, he offers half of his family to the slaughter. Jacob is preparing to lose half 
of everything that he has. I mean, this is an all honestly, it's a terrible plan, even if it would work. Uh, 400, you're riding on the assumption that 400 men would be easily deceived and couldn't catch another camp of women and children and animals. But Jacob doesn't know what else to do. Fear drives Jacob. He is consumed with creating security in his life instead of resting in the divine providence and promises of God. The one who called him back to this land saying, Arise, return to your homeland. The very same God who said to him, When he left this very promised land, I am with you and I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go. God has promised to be with him no matter what would happen. But Jacob is too consumed by his circumstances to look to God for help. To that camp that is above him marked by angels. He is distracted by his circumstances from the most important things. Namely looking to God for help and reassurance for that whatever may come, comes from the hand of God himself. The one who called him to this particular path. I mean, Jacob does pray, not to be too hard on him. This prayer really is, it's a fantastic prayer. Well, there's invocation, there's confession for sin, and he calls upon God. But notice these two things as he prays here. He basically says to God in this prayer, God, deliver me from my brother, for this is my greatest fear that is before me. Because you said you would do me good. Because you said you would prosper me. And it begs the question, is God still good to Jacob if bad things do indeed happen to him? Now, this is not the same response of faith we get from Job, whom everything is taken away from him. And he says, surely shall we take only the good things from God's hands and not the best or bad. Jacob is looking to be spared from any pain or any trial or anything that may come. This is what Jacob is saying. He's saying, look, You said you good would happen to me, but all I see around me is danger and trouble. So keep your end of the bargain and deliver me. But then as soon as he's done praying, notice his other action. As soon as he is done praying, notice he keeps coming up with more ways to stop this encounter with Jacob from going south. He keeps devising more plans and scheming. He keeps scheming ways to appease his brother's wrath, not to uh, content to trust God to deliver him. And we do this all the time too, don't we? I mean, we ask God for help. When nothing happens immediately, we start to figure out how to do it on our own because we're worried about it. We fear what could happen. If church isn't growing fast enough, we try to figure out ways to attract more people by offering free babysitting or gift cards or ways to entertain them in some kind. When our marriages aren't being healed immediately, we start looking for ways to get out. When our children aren't living by faith, we look for ways to either rebuke them or ignore their actions. Instead of petitioning the Lord in prayer and resting upon his sovereignty in all things, we ignore this means of God's grace, choosing action, choosing action over this seemingly weak and insignificant weapon of faith. Scripture tells us that we instead ought to be still and know that he is God, no matter what the circumstances are that we might be facing. We ought to learn and know that faith isn't always about action. Sometimes it is about pressing God to move 
and pleading again and again with him to do so through prayer and petitions like the woman who pestered the judge every day for justice until he gave it. Allowing God to be God, to do what he will, and resting in that truth and that reality. But we often don't respond that way to difficult circumstances. We often respond just like Jacob does here. As soon as he's done praying, again, he's looking for ways to appease his brother without God's help. Now he sends gifts, 550 animals. Now, this is no small gift. This is, this is a bit of a doozy. And then he has his servants space out the gifts, you know, apart in drove after drove to sort of unarm Esau to make it seem as though it's an even greater gift and more magnanimous, or magnanimous, big. <laughs> he sends all of these things ahead of him, afraid to meet his brother. Going before him, he even sends his family across the Jacob, Jabbok, which is a branch off of uh, the Jordan before him. He even sends his family across all the while. You'll notice in the text, night and darkness begin descending upon him like a bird descending upon its prey. Darkness has fallen upon him, and the imagery is clear. The Bible doesn't add this language of darkness just because it's informative. This is a dark period in the life of Jacob. This is the dark night of the soul when everything around him seems to press in on him until he is all alone and there is nowhere to turn. And it is here in the darkness of night that he meets with God. Meets with God. As Jacob sits in the darkness, afraid to cross the shores of the river before him, where in front of him waits his brother. And behind him lies Laban, this one whom he has offended, even in his leaving. As he is surrounded by enemies, seemingly as it is pressing in upon him, as his distress is becoming oppressive to him, suddenly the text shifts and he is wrestling with a man. Notice the text doesn't tell us right away who this is. We're supposed to uh, get the idea that this is probably one of Jacob's enemies come to kill him. Now, certainly that's what Jacob thinks. Because Jacob engages in wrestling with this man. And suddenly Jacob is seized in this life and death struggle, battling this man all night long, fighting for his life. Jacob, all life long, has been fighting from the cradle to, the, to this point now to create his own advantages ever since he was in the womb, grasping the heel of his brother for the birthright. Every time he somehow, through his scheming, through his strength, through his persistence, Sometimes through his unscrupulous ways, he comes out on top. And this night seems to be no different. He is prevailing against this man, you'll notice, using all his might and strength. And it seems as though this battle is indeed going to go to Jacob when the man reaches down and touches Jacob. Just touches him. That's all. Just a hand upon his hip, and his hip is broken. His lower half no longer is any help to him. The strength of man is dissipated, and we realize this wrestling match that we've been witnessing, that Jacob has been going through with all of his strength, battling for his life, is then as though a father was arm wrestling with his small son, letting Jacob prevail upon him. You know, you almost got me that time, kid. And suddenly we realize God has come.
that the army of angels that we saw that was surely a sign that God has come to meet someone in battle has come down. And he hasn't come out to meet the enemies of Jacob in battle, but he has come to battle his own chosen one, his child Jacob. We don't usually think of God in this way, coming to do battle with his own children, and yet that is exactly what is going on here. As soon as Jacob's hip is broken, as soon as God prevails upon him, and is as though all strength leaves him, all his scheming, all his fighting, all his trying to make things work to his own advantage, and in his own power, they are all gone. It has all been wiped away. As Jacob realizes he's been fearing the wrong person, he's been so worried about Esau, he's forgotten to fear God. And suddenly Jacob realizes, as he's hanging on for dear life, as he continues to hold on, that if this one who wrestles him has the power to break him at a touch, he knows that he cannot beat him, he cannot overpower him, He cannot take any advantage from him without the man giving it up on his own. And so he says, I will not let go until you bless me. I will hold on waiting for your blessing. I know I'm not going to gain it according to the conflict of this fight unless it is given to me. I have no power on my own to gain. I need you to bless me. And in this moment of darkness and crisis and pain, Jacob confesses, I cannot be blessed through my own strength. And so the man asks him, what is your name? Very unusual here, isn't it? Uh, you know, he's wrestling. He says, bless him. He says, what's your name? As though he doesn't know it already. But he's asking for a particular reason. Because when Jacob says his name, He is confessing who he is. I am Jacob. I'm old heel grabber. I am the deceiver. That is what his name means. That is what he is confessing. He is proclaiming to this man who he is, his whole lifelong, his entire identity. This one who schemes, looking to get ahead, who tricks and deceives. Jacob says, That's who I am. I am a sinner. I am a deceiver, and the man says, you are no longer Jacob, but you are Israel, which literally means God fights. The question is, is God fighting for or against you, Jacob? But the text interprets it for us, saying, for you have fought with God. We ought to read it this way, because you have fought with God, now you prevail against men. And he blesses him, and he leaves. Jacob knows full well what has happened here because naming this place Peniel it means I have seen God face to face and lived what is this all about what is going on in the text what is the point here well notice what's happened to Jacob Jacob has an encounter with God and suddenly he has been changed Jacob has this meeting with God. He has encountered God in the dark of the night, in the midst of his greatest fears of his life up to this point. And in his darkest moment, in the strongest of his fears, God takes him and he renames him, saying, you're no longer a deceiver, but now you are a new man. 
You have been made into a new man, Jacob. You stand on the threshold of the promised land. My land, and Jacob, if you want to go into the place where I am, then you do not come as one who is a deceiver. You have to be undone. And come not in your own strength, but in the one who has un completely undone you. One who has been humbled by God himself. Jacob has been made low. He cannot trust in his own strength to get him anywhere with this God. No longer, no more schemes to grasp at God's promises. No more uh, deceiving or trickery. And as, uh, as the day or as the um, night closes, we see in the text a new day dawn. Jacob stands now on the shores of the river, about to enter the promised man, a new man forever changed. No longer can he depend on his strength to carry him through. He can't use God as a backup plan for his protection. But now his strength is gone, fully deprived of it. He lives a man who is in weakness. And we see this as he walks with a limp for the remainder of his days. He is dependent on God now for his strength and God alone. Something he will be reminded every single day as he limps, even across the river to the other side to face the circumstances God has brought into his life. God has taken his fears, his troubles, his circumstances, all these things that he's been facing and worrying about and terrified about, and he hasn't changed them, you'll notice. He hasn't removed the situation. Esau still lies in, ahead of him waiting to meet him, and we'll meet him in the next chapter. But God has reoriented him and changed his fear, no longer to fear his circumstances, but to fear God. For if he fears God, what can man do to him? If God is for him, who can be against him? And even if they are against him, even if all mankind are against him, what does it matter if God is with him? The striving, through striving with God in this darkest hour, his fear is no longer what the new day may bring, but his standing before his God. You see, people of God, God's grace comes to us, not in the smooth, easy places of life, but he comes to us in the midst of our fears and in our tremblings, in the midst of our circumstances and trials. He comes often in the darkest places of life. And God comes to man, and he meets his own, not in the brightest of days, but in the blackest of nights. He meets us at the cross. When the sun would not shine on his beloved son as he was sacrificed for our sin, and that is still where he meets his own to bless them. If we will lay down our arms, our scheming, our need to control everything in life, if we are willing to know that God is in control, humbling ourselves before him. You see, people of God, knowing and meeting God through Christ Jesus, it doesn't mean life will get easy. Notice Jacob still, again, has to go meet his brother, but it means that our fears are in the right place. Not in our circumstances, not in the things that life may bring that so easily change. But we fear God and his wrath against sin above all else, giving him the honor and glory due to his name. No matter who or what may come to meet us, be it the loss of a job or financial insecurity or a brother who wishes us harm, we know that God will work all things for the good for those who love him, and we know it. 
because of his grace in Christ Jesus that came to us in our greatest need, namely for our sins against him. What more do we have to fear but God himself? And as you come to this text, we see one whose whole life has been reoriented one whose life has been one of fear and frustration and scheming, and suddenly he has encountered God and everything changes. And now he fears God, and you will see a marked change in this man for the rest of his days. A man who fears God above all else, and it reorients him, how he perceives everything about him. Surely, people of God, that is true of you as well. For God came as the man, God-man Christ Jesus. He came into the world indeed to save sinners. And if God has done that, if he has met you in the deepest and darkest of our problems and trials, what more can man do to you? Amen. Let's pray together. Our God, we come before you. We confess before you that we often are plagued by fears and anxieties over the circumstances that are right before our face. For surely often these uh, things in our lives seem bigger than you. And Father, forgive us when we do so. Because surely we know that you are over all things. You are great and greatly to be praised. You are the one whom, is, uh, uh, um, whom na- every name You are the one who every knee is to bow to and every tongue confess. You are the one who is over all things. Father, we pray that you would turn our fears indeed into rejoicing as we gather together as those bought by the blood of Christ Jesus. We pray, Lord, that you would continue to turn our eyes to this one who has made all things new, even ourselves. And we pray that you would reorient us to a life lived in faith turning to you even through our prayers. We ask, God, that you would do these things, that you would help us as we walk through this weary life, through these circumstances that so easily detract from who you are and what you have accomplished. We pray, God, that you would continue to turn our eyes to the one who is over all things, that we may fear him and walk according to his word and his plans, all through the mercy and merits of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.